the book of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. Hear now the word of God. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray and ask God to help us to hear his word. Heavenly Father, this morning we come to this passage that may seem simple, and yet there are weighty ideas undergirding all of what your servant says in this text. So would you give us wisdom? Would you... Help us not to get so lost in what is here that we miss the real message and the real point of this passage. Help us to be warned and also hopeful. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. When my family and I visited Oregon a couple of years ago, this was before I knew that Evergreen even existed as a church. hope that doesn't make you sad. I did not know this church existed. Uh, But uh, one of the first things we did was we visited the coast. We have family up here. And so what did they want us to see when we came here? They wanted us to see the coast. And so we went to the coast, and I love the Oregon coast. It is dreary. It is overcast. It is exactly what my personality needs, right? I was not made for California sunshine, runs on the beach, beach volleyball. No, that is not, that is not me. Um... And one of my favorite places that we went to, and you've probably all been there, is the wreck of the Peter Iridell, uh, which just left this incredible impression on me. Uh, I mean, here you have this ship. After looking at it, I thought I need to do my homework and know what I was actually looking at. And there's this ship, right? It's traveling from Mexico up to Portland with a thousand tons of cargo, uh, a crew of 27 people, an experienced captain, an experienced crew, and yet really... Uh, they were no match for a northwestern squall, which drove them to shore. Uh, thankfully, none of the crew lost their lives, and yet here in the aftermath we are, and we can still see 115 years later, this bleached skeleton of this magnificent ship still stuck in the ground for everybody to see. This, this warning that even the most experienced sailors and the best preparation possible, you can still find yourself shipwrecked. Paul is writing to Timothy, and Timothy is in Ephesus. Ephesus is a seaport. Ephesus is a place near the sea. Um, Something about these towns along the sea, they have a special relationship with the water, right? When people go to sea, they come back and they have stories. They have tales, things that they've seen, things they perhaps imagined. Um, They have experience with things just like shipwrecks, which Paul makes reference to. Um, There is something sobering about reflecting upon just how dangerous it is to work at the sea. Uh, I decided to watch one season of uh, Deadliest Catch, and I decided that I would never do that. That sounded like a bad job. A great way to get killed, work on a crabbing vessel. 
And it's very easy for people to be killed on these vessels. Working at sea is, is no walk in the park. Um, there is need when someone goes to sea for this stern warning. Do you know what you're in for? Do you realize the danger that lies ahead? And Paul takes this illustration here that is very, it's perfect for Timothy's context. It's perfect for the people that he's dealing with and the place where Timothy lives. And he chooses this metaphor of the shipwreck to illustrate what happened to two men specifically. He calls them out by name. They are Hymenaeus and Alexander. And Paul says to Timothy, in essence, you need to hold fast to the things that I have been setting before you and that I am setting before you, because if you don't, you could shipwreck your faith like Hymenaeus and Alexander did. Every time I'm preparing a message, one of the things I ask myself is, why does this text exist? Why are these verses here? What are these verses saying? Why isn't the book of 1 Timothy three verses shorter? Why isn't it? Why was this written? And when you're talking about these three verses today, here's what I kept going back to. I kept going back to this. This is a young man who needs to be warned. He needs to see the the shot fired across the bow. He needs to see that the Christian walk is serious business because he's, in a sense, going to see. And his listeners, in a sense, are going to see. Here's this other question that I ask when I'm preparing a sermon. I ask this question, what is it, what is about the main point of the passage that might cause confusion or need clarification? And is it something that I should actually address? Because sometimes questions arise and you say, as, as the one who's preaching, you say, if I go into this, we're going to miss the main point. If I go into this, we're going to go off on a tangent, and no one will come away feeling like they understand the passage any better. And so a lot of times, it's great. I love having conversations outside on the porch, usually when we're leaving, and someone will say, you know, you didn't talk about this. And I will say, I stayed on course by not talking about that, but it was very tempting. And that's one of those things that I have been thinking about this morning, because here is something that comes up. Here is something that I think a lot of you maybe even thought about as you were reading this morning in the text about shipwreck. The Bible teaches us that God preserves his people in the faith, that, that if we are that if we're truly his people, that he's going to carry that work that he started in our hearts. He's going to carry that work on to completion. And he tells us in his word that if we are truly in Christ, that he's going to maintain us and he's going to keep us secure. And yet the passage presents us with this obvious question. Is it really possible for someone to shipwreck if they're in Christ? I think all of us have known people who were, they were in the church. Maybe they seemed sincere. Maybe we were sure, we were sure this person is or was a Christian and then later they, they walked away from the church. They said, they said, no, I no longer believe in Christ. You know people like this in your life if you've lived long enough. How are these two things compatible? How can God carry us along in the faith and keep us secure, keep us trusting in him? And yet also, how can it also be true that someone can make shipwreck? And so because I think this is so important and because I know that it matters to us and has such relevance, 
And I think if you don't think it now, you will hopefully by the end. I want us to approach this problem today in this way by talking about the voyage and then talking about the danger. So, so in point one, I want to show you the promises of God as they relate to your own security in Christ. And then in point two, I want to show you what the Bible says about this idea of what Paul calls making shipwreck. How do we reflect upon this reality? First, let's talk about the voyage. You see this in verses 1 to 19. Uh, what I mean by this is the voyage that is the Christian life. After all, uh, life is hazardous. Life is dangerous. The Christian life especially is full of dangers around every turn. The Bible is filled with warnings for us precisely because the Christian life is no walk in the park. How does God expect someone who is a sinner, someone who is, someone who is weak, someone who doesn't have strength in themselves to survive in the faith? You perhaps even got up this morning and you said, I feel weak in my faith. I don't feel strong in the faith. How can someone who wakes up and says, I have no strength in me today, look at tomorrow with hope? And the answer is, and the answer is, uh, how, um, and, the, and the answer is that God is doing something in our own hearts. And I want to talk about that. Because before we can make sense of this metaphor that Paul uses, this, this idea of the shipwreck, we need to orient ourselves to this question. Can someone who is a Christian lose their salvation? That's usually the simplest way that people put it. There's probably more theological nuance that we could put on it, but that's basically the question that, that many people want to ask. Because however we answer this question is going to affect how we think about this shipwrecking that Paul warns us about so urgently. Well, the teaching of Scripture is that God himself draws us, preserves us, and sustains us in the faith, not that we sustain ourselves, not that there's any strength or power or life that comes from our own hearts. Let me point out a couple of passages that say this so well. One of the most profound passages that I could take someone to to illustrate this is is also controversial in the life of Jesus. In fact, it almost gets him killed by the crowds after he says it. Uh, you may remember the Bread of Life discourse in John chapter 6. In that passage, Jesus is, is telling them who he is, and he's explicitly telling them that he is the bread of life that they have to eat if they want to live. And it's very upsetting to his listeners. They don't like the metaphors. They don't like the claims he's making about himself. There are so many problems wrapped up in this sermon that Jesus is preaching. Problems for the audience, anyway. And he, and he makes this statement that ties together so much of our neediness and what God does for us. Just listen to this, this passage. It's just one verse in John 6.44. He's talking to the crowds, and he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, there's a lot here. It's, it's another passage that deserves its own sermon. It deserves its own explanation. But I, I want you to notice two things about what Jesus says here. Notice what we can't do here. We don't even have it in us to come to Jesus unless something else is done first, something that happens outside of us and who we are. What is that thing that Jesus says has to happen? It is being drawn by the Father. He says, no one can come to me on our own without God doing something 
we will be unable and unwilling. We're unable to come to Jesus unless the Father draws us. Right? He's talking about a heart persuasion. What does it look like to come to Jesus? It looks like our heart being changed. He's talking about a softening of the heart so that we love and desire God and we love and believe the gospel instead of hating God and fleeing from God. I think he's talking about something that Ezekiel addressed when he spoke of that promise that God would take out our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. Notice this is something God does. This is not something that we accomplish or achieve or work into our own heart. So unless God does that for you, says Jesus, you will never be able to come to him. Jesus is diagnosing us. He's saying, you have something fundamentally that you are incapable of doing unless something happens. You will not come to Jesus because you do not want Jesus unless God changes your heart and changes your desire. You will never want to come to Jesus, certainly not on God's terms and certainly not in God's way. Jesus says, no one can come to me. It's a universal statement about every person. Every single human being, he says, is incapable of coming because they do not want him. Okay, that's already hard to swallow. I remember the first time that someone said that to me. I was a young Christian and I I got very upset because I distinctly remembered making a decision. I, I remembered the moment when I went from not believing to believing. And I remember the moment because in my case, every Christian doesn't do this, but in my case, I fell to my knees beside my bed. And I remember praying and I wrote in my Bible that very night about my belief in Jesus in that moment. So I distinctly remember it was something I was conscious of. And so I thought, always thought of my coming to Christ as something that I worked out for myself, that I thought through for myself. I thought I'm responding to the facts. I had this weirdly intellectual journey to Jesus. It's just, I'm weird. So how, this was my reasoning, how could God have drawn me if I basically sensed that I had drawn myself? I basically sensed that I was the one who was acting at every stage How could I be drawn by the Father if I remember doing all of the studying? I bought books. I told you I was a nerd. I I bought books on the subject. I was looking up talks on these things. I was studying these things for myself. If I know that I'm making these choices, how is it that I'm being drawn by the Father? And the truth is, God doesn't remove choice from the equation. We do choose. The question is not whether we choose. The question is why do we choose what we choose? When it comes to trusting in Jesus, of course people make a choice to follow God. Some, some, some people get allergic to talking about choice at all, but the truth is we make choices. But the question is why did we make that choice? This is where we get at what Jesus is saying. Jesus says we choose what we choose because of a prior work the drawing of the Father. It is a drawing that we are often unaware of. We don't feel it necessarily. We don't see an invisible hand bringing us to faith in him. We don't feel at any point like, our, like, like we are not making choices. Here's what we do experience, though. 
I once was blind, but now I see. Something like scales falls from our eyes and this thing that we once hated, now we love. And all of this is not physical. It's, it's a heart change. It's, it's a change of love. It's a change of disposition. It's something only God can work in our hearts. Paul talks about this in Philippians. He says, God began a good work in you. You know that passage? He, he, Paul says, he, he awakened your heart. He gave you a heart of flesh. He took away your heart of stone. He began that work. This is God's description of what happens in the heart of a believer. You believed, but he began it. And this is what Paul says in Philippians 1.6. He says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Here's where those things start to come together. You come to God because he did a work in your heart. And yet it's not like then God says, well, there you are. I, I gave you faith. You believed in Jesus. Now you are on your own to stumble through the rest of life or finish this deeply hazardous journey on your own. Well, he doesn't say that. He says, the same God who saved you initially by changing your heart will bring it to completion. This is the language Paul uses word for word. He will bring it to completion. He will finish this. Think of, think of that verse that I read to you from the Bread of Life discourse again. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. So he doesn't say, I hope to raise those that the Father draws up on the last day. He doesn't say, I aim to raise them up. He says, will. Think of the certainty with which Jesus is willing to make that statement. Words of confidence. These are words of security. These are words that Jesus is making in part to strengthen us. And so Jesus is saying the Father's plan is that all of the drawn ones, all of those whom God begins a good work in their heart, that God will raise them up. And so Jesus is saying, if you are drawn, then you will be raised up. Do you see that? So I'm not importing that into the text. This is is Jesus' own words that I'm I'm emphasizing here. So it's, it's right there. If you are drawn, you will be raised there's this incredible reassuring security that God is, is giving us in these, these teachings of Jesus. All, all of this undergirds our own voyage in the Christian life. It is a teaching that is meant to allow us to open our doors, step out into the Christian life, and even live in a place of danger, a place of uncertainty, a place of confusion, and yet we never should be afraid that the captain is not at the helm. Jesus says, he began it, he will keep it up, he will carry you to the very end. That doesn't mean that we don't work, it doesn't mean that we don't labor. Paul says that we should wage the good warfare. In our passage today, right? We have our responsibilities, but it also means that from God's perspective, you are secure in Christ. It is God who draws you. It's God who keeps you. It's God who maintains you in the faith. 
Even as you are the one believing, he is the one who keeps you believing by the Spirit's power. There's also this reality. I remember years ago hearing uh, a certain preacher, whose name I won't say because I don't want, want your minds to stray. But I remember him saying, salvation is like a tattoo. And if you get it, you never lose it. Which, as far as it goes, I think, okay. But then he said, even if you stop believing, even if, you, even if you wander away and never come back, you've been marked. You're always God's forever. And I remember thinking, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says God keeps us believing. Uh, your perseverance in the faith is one of the evidences that you have been drawn to begin with. That's why Jesus says, I will raise him up on the last day. See, there's this, there's this reality that even though God preserves us in the faith, he preserves us in the faith. He preserves us while believing. He preserves us believing. And so we have this responsibility to will and to do. We are responsible to look to Jesus, to confess our sins, to be repentant people. But there is this undergirding strength that Jesus keeps pointing to that says, you don't have to look in here for the strength and the resources to live the Christian life because God does that in you. God will provide. You don't have to be shaken or afraid that maybe tomorrow you won't believe. Why? Because you keep setting your eyes on Christ by the power of the Spirit and you know that it's by God's grace that you keep doing that every day. And then you're upheld by this divine promise. Promises like, I will never leave you or forsake you. He won't begin you in the Christian life and then say, see you later. He doesn't do that. He will not leave us. He won't take his spirit away. We live by God's strength. We don't live by our own strength, our own power, our own grit and determination, right? The the, the practical side of all of this is that we don't tremble with fear That somehow this whole thing, which can sometimes feel like a house of cards, if we start to focus on ourselves, the whole Christian life will feel like like a house of cards. And we don't have to be afraid that the Christian life is somehow going to come tumbling in, in around us. Instead, we set our eyes on Jesus. And as long as Jesus doesn't crumble, neither do we. Why? Because he has us. Because he began us. Even as we waver, even as we struggle, he has us. And that is enough to sustain us. That leads to questions, of course. Because you and I know people who abandon the faith. I have shared before about the pastor who mentored me when I was in seminary in Mississippi. Without going very far into the story, which I'm I'm willing to share, but I don't want us to go off the path. My pastor fell and he fell hard and... He left the church and he was disciplined by the presbytery and eventually he left the church and abandoned the faith altogether. And he died by his own hand in a New York, New Orleans hotel, having done unspeakable things to himself and to his family. I am still scarred by what happened. His church was scarred by what happened and his church no longer even exists any longer. Um, This was a man that I loved genuinely, and by all indications, he seemed to be one of these people who trusted in Jesus and should have been secure to the very end. And yet I feel confident in saying, now that his story is finished, 
seemingly that Jesus spoke of someone like him in Matthew 7, 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many, many works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you, he says, right? He doesn't say, I knew you for a while, but you abandoned me. He says, I never knew you. Jesus says, there is a such thing as the person who believes that he knows God. And yet on the last day, he himself will be surprised to hear God say, I never knew you. First John 2.19 talks about this, this reality of the false profession. It, it says this, John says this, speaking of false professors, he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain, to, plain that they are all not of us. In other words, the visible church, as we see it, includes people who are not united to Christ from the heart. Jesus uses the illustration in another place of wheat and chaff. Um, the church is like a field that has both growing up in it, and the, the wheat and the chaff are alongside of each other. The church is intentionally, by God's design, a mixed gathering. Uh, I remember when I was a kid, I used to go out in the fields. One of the ways I made money in the summertime was I would, uh, I would go out, and my job was to pick rye in the fields. And I hated picking rye. It's a terrible job because you have to pull it up by the roots. And the reason you had to do that was because throughout the field you could see there's wheat. And then the rye would grow a little taller than the wheat. And they grew up together. In our case, we tried to remove it beforehand, which was fruitless because there's so much rye. Um, The church is a mixed gathering with wheat and chaff growing together. Weeds growing alongside of the healthy. And... They look like us and walk like us and worship alongside of us. I say they. I could say we. Jesus seems to take it for granted that churches contain such people. Jesus says in Matthew 15, 18, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, right? It's a visible church. Everyone's honoring God with their lips. And yet they sing the same songs together, but sometimes the heart tells a different story. I'm trying to give us a framework for how we think about the warning that Paul is giving to Timothy here. In a world where it is God who draws the sinner, where it is Christ who provides the sacrifice, where it's the spirit who applies the work of Jesus. In a world, in other words, where believers are preserved in their faith by the power of God moment by moment. How does Paul even think it necessary to give this warning to Timothy about people making shipwreck. Well, it takes us to point two, which is the danger that Paul speaks of. Because Paul speaks to this young man and, and he has been driving home the importance of holding fast to the faith once delivered. That's been the context. He's being given this weighty responsibility to teach the law and uphold the law, but to do so rightly. Some of these people have misunderstood the law and they have misapplied the law and they've bound these burdens on people because they haven't used the law lawfully. We saw that in the last couple of weeks. So Paul here goes, goes back to those teachings that he was setting forth at the beginning and he's saying, we are people of grace. They are people who hang their hope on the law. 
And if you do that, you could make shipwreck of your faith like these men have. So for him, what does it look like to make shipwreck of your faith? It is to turn your eyes to yourself, to trust in yourself, to look to your own goodness, to root around in here and try to find some kind of security by looking inside. Maybe I will be secure if I just look deeper. You do that, he says, you're going to wreck the ship. Now, here's the question. He gives these concrete examples of Hymenaeus and Alexander. Here's one question for us to think about. Are Hymenaeus and Alexander eternally condemned because of their error? On the one hand, I think the answer is yes, if they keep it up. It's a conditional answer. It's a yes, if they keep it up. I think that Paul implies this. They are not there yet, but they could be. Paul says, if they persist in their blasphemies, they have no reason to think that they're saved. On the other hand, I think it's easy for us to read this language of shipwreck and think whoever makes shipwreck of their faith can never be restored, can never be brought into fellowship with Christ. We sort of Uh, We sort of infer it from the idea and the notion, wow, there's nothing, you can't undo a shipwreck, right? I don't think the text is saying that. Think about this. Even when someone abandons Christ, we don't know if it's for a season or not. Now, at one point, Jesus actually says that every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. That's in Matthew 12, 31. Every sin and blasphemy will will be forgiven. So, So the blasphemy of these men doesn't put them beyond God's grace. We don't know the future and we don't know the heart. I'm glad to say I know examples of men and women who rebelled against God. They did something dramatic. They were separated from the church. They said, I'm going to do life my way now. But then they eventually came back and they were restored. I know of people. I could give names to you. Praise God. That is a reality. And so even when someone, maybe your own child, comes to you and says, I don't believe anymore. It is not a reason to give up. It is a reason to pray. It's a reason to keep holding out grace to them, right? The the Peter Iredell ran ashore and all 27 of those sailors walked away, right? A shipwreck is a shipwreck, but it is not necessarily final destruction, I don't even think Paul regards Hymenaeus and Alexander as totally lost forever. Look what he says. I have handed them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Sadly, I can only tell you what I think being handed over to Satan means. I I don't have time to chase that, that rabbit trail. Paul is speaking of excommunication from the church here. In other words, the situation was bad enough with Hymenaeus and Alexander that they had to be removed from the visible fellowship of the church. They were no longer part of the visible church. And yet Paul is also hopeful that God would use their excommunication as a means to warn and bring them back. What a joyful thing you could imagine for Timothy to see Hymenaeus and Alexander return to their gathering and to repent and to once again become part of the visible church. I think Paul is hopeful for that for them. It reminds me of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 3.15 where he talks about someone being saved but only as through fire. It's possible that what Paul says here, it could feel pessimistic to you. 
I hope it doesn't sound pessimistic. It, it's uncomfortable to be reminded of the reality that there are hypocrites and false professors in the church. The Bible warns us of it enough that we know God wants us to take the warning seriously. He says it in scripture. He says it for our good. He says it for our benefit. He doesn't say it to make us uncomfortable. He, he wants us to search our own hearts. He wants us to ask God, show me if there's hypocrisy within me. And yet even hard truths in the Bible are undergirded with reasons for hope, right? Even Paul seems to think that these excommunicated men could still return. It could happen. And Paul doesn't close the door to that. He's hopeful even. Here's a word for you. You have a son, a daughter, a granddaughter, a brother, a sister, a spouse, A friend, someone who said to you, I want nothing to do with the church. I want nothing to do with Christ. Maybe they've even said, I don't believe in God anymore. I bet if we went through this room and we asked people to raise their hands, you would see a large number of hands going up. Or maybe they have followed a false religion. They've gone off with Hymenaeus and Alexander in a sense. I want to say this to you, that you may feel hopeless. You may even find yourself saying, I guess that means they're going to hell. And it breaks your heart to think that it could be true. Let me just say, please don't be hopeless. You are not hopeless. Don't close the door. Don't lose hope. Don't stop praying because God can change any heart. He he changed your heart, didn't he? If you're concerned about these things, then you are somebody who cares about the things of God. You're somebody who knows what it is to have your heart changed. You know how stubborn you were before. You know what you were by nature. And if, and if you know yourself, then you are every day surprised that you are walking with the Lord. Take that surprise and remember that this person you love is no worse than you were And they are entirely within the realm of being changed by the Lord. It is a miracle that you are in Christ. You are not so special that God can't or won't do the same thing for somebody that you love. Remember those words of Jesus. He says, all that the Father has given to me will come to me. We don't know whom the Father has given. We don't have special spectacles that we can put on and We can see who's real and who's not. We simply have to walk through life with God knowing and not us knowing. And so that's why we pray. We pray for all of those in our lives. We pray for the ones we love. We pray for our enemies too. We don't know the future. God hasn't shown us his heavenly counsel. We don't get to write anyone off. Anyone. Think of the most stubborn, persistent, unbeliever in your life. The person that if they came to Christ, you'd probably fall over and have a heart attack. Think of that person. Have you written them off? Is there someone in your life that you've decided, you know, God changes hearts, but he won't change that heart. That's an expression of unbelief. To think that God wouldn't or couldn't do that with somebody. What are we getting to? What am I getting at? What's the point? Can shipwrecks happen? Absolutely. 
Can it even happen to someone who belongs to Christ? Yes. But even a shipwreck can be redeemed. You can bet that much. We're each living proof of that, aren't we? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, on the one hand, we give you glory this morning to remember that you really are the foundation. You really are the alpha and the omega of our own salvation. Everything that we know has come to us from your hand, by your grace, and for your glory. From you and through you and to you are all things. And yet we pray the same thing for ourselves and for our loved ones that Paul wanted for Timothy. Protect us from falling into error. Protect us from making shipwreck of our faith. Carry, sustain, and provide everything that we need. For those in our life that we love, Lord, would you remind them for the first time perhaps that there is life and there is salvation in your son. Would you help us, O God, to take our eyes off of ourselves and put them on Jesus Christ? One of the reminders of this passage, O God, is that when we stray into putting our confidence in us and our works and our life and our faith, when we focus on our faith and make our faith the object of our salvation, O God, that's the sin of Hymenaeus and Alexander. Take our eyes off of us and turn our eyes upon Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.